Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Maggie Reichard, and you are listening to Nursing Uncharted, a podcast that introduces nurses to all different types of nursing. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us today. If you like what you hear, please let us know and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like what we hear, just keep on scrolling. <laughs> just kidding. Well, we hope that you like what you're listening to. And I like to tailor these episodes to what you want to listen to. So if you're interested in hearing about a particular topic, let me know. Send me a DM on Instagram at nursinguncharted and just let me know what you want to talk about or who you want us to talk to. So we are nearing the end of July when this episode airs. And I hope everybody is having a good summer so far on their days off, getting a little R&R. Summer is always a pivotal time in the inpatient setting because it's a time of new beginnings and fresh new recruits, new, new recruits. We're talking about the interns are new, new grads are starting. So are you starting a new job? Are you a preceptor now? Are you dealing with new interns? Let me know. Do you want to hear more about that stuff? Let me know, guys. So today we are back into the thick of the inpatient realm. Oh, I also wanted to say, if you're listening, if you're looking, watching on YouTube, um, you might see behind me that my uh, backdrop is looking a little bare. I am moving. I've been building a house with my husband. Well, physically, not me building the house, but we've been building a house um, since October and it's finally uh, ready. And so we're closing on Friday. So our house is a mess. And I think after uh, this episode, I'll probably be set up in some new digs. So that will be exciting. It, backdrop will look a little different from here on out. So, um, so today we're going back into the inpatient realm. We're kind of going back into the thick of inpatient um, into a specialty in ICU nursing. We're talking about surgical and trauma ICU nursing today. So here to delve into this realm of nursing with me is Liz Christian. Liz has been a trauma surgery nurse for six years at a rural level one trauma center in New Hampshire. Liz started med surge first and worked her way into the ICU after about two and a half years. Liz also has kind of a unique specialty within the ICU nursing realm too, working sometimes as a tele ICU nurse, which we'll talk about later. She uh, also became CCRN, the Certified Critical Care Nurse, last year. When not in the ICU, Liz can be found cooking, reading, and playing with her four-month-old kitten, Mojo. Hi. So, Liz, welcome Thank to the show. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you could come on. I met Liz at NTI a couple months ago. Yeah, I already can't believe it. Ago. I'm still kind of riding the... Um, I sent a unit email of all the cool stuff we saw. And I was like, I'm still riding the high. Yeah. Like the, all the enthusiasm and the passion. It was just really, really something special. So, um, and I met you and Raul and all of those amazing friends that we've made. And it was, yeah, it was an exceptional experience. Yeah. Yeah. I would highly recommend anybody that wanted, wants to, you know, start going to conferences. NTI is a great one to start start with totally you know there was like a good mix of kind of you know emotion or or like you know feeding to our kind of reigniting passion and also like the educational piece like two in one it were like really built connection well, we hadn't we haven't been able to share information and experiences with each other in you know yeah. three years that was the last ntr was in 2019 so it's it was nice to be able to you know, have those connections and network and, and, yeah. you know, share, share our, our COVID experiences. And I think, um, the, the rooted in strength mm -hmm. theme really spoke to that, you know, how we have yeah. just overcome in incredible, um, obstacles in nursing, especially managing critically ill COVID patients. It's just, you know, and, um, we wouldn't have been able to do it unless we were sharing info with each other and, and, and figuring out what worked yeah. and, and what didn't. And, and so I think, um, it was nice. Yeah. It was nice. We, do, <clears throat> we don't really, uh, allot ourselves enough, you know, i in a sense, I, I feel like I'm kind of enveloped in nursing culture. Like I'm on nursing Instagram memes all the time. Like I'm, you know, like, 
there's like relatable content coming in and out all the time, but it's different if you are all coming together in person and like talking about your actual experiences. That's something that we don't. And even at work, I mean, we don't take the time to like, you know, really delve into wow. that stuff and talk about where's that the stuff. time so it was a, you know what right <laughs> often yeah. it's it's yeah. uh you know okay well that was really terrible and we're gonna shake it off and we're just gonna kind of keep trucking until 7 a.m and hope that you yeah. know nothing else hits us on the way there it's so <laughs> um and then you know at the end of the day you, you don't want to you don't you just want to go home you know you, they, there's yeah there's not really a chance yeah. to talk and decompress and and debrief really. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I found that NTI, that experience was very cathartic being able to mm-hmm. talk about, you know, kind of what we've all been through and, and what we're doing, you know, what are you doing in, in the sick you there? And what are you doing in the MIC you there? And how are you managing those patients? Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, so that was, I, I, I had a lot of, um, folks approach me, especially, um, those that are in surgical ICUs, very small surgical ICUs. And, you know, how are you managing patients with open bellies, which we'll talk about? And, you know, how are you managing patients after X, Y, or Z um, trauma? And so that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the standard of care is kind of a blanket, but the way surgeons practice is, is different everywhere. So, you, you know, and totally. that affects how us nurses kind of manage and, and practice as well. So that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It it is you you do leave conferences like that with a with a broader understanding of where you're um how totally. you practice and you know you come out with ideas to bring to your other hospitals like hey, they're doing this over why, here. Like why why yep. can't we we totally. do that too? Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know. So let's get into stick you. So what really you started in med surge? Started in med um, surge. You, yeah. What really led you into stick you? Well, um, you know, taking it way, way back, my parents were actually volunteer EMTs when I was a kid, and um, you know, I would go with them. We would be in the car, and they would get a call, and we would just go and. Uh, so when I first, when I first, I know, so it cool. was, <laughs> You're like I was a little, like, I can remember like, being in a booster seat and my mom being like, stay in the car and having, you know, one of her EMS friends sitting with me while she went into the house. And it was just like, um, it was, it was a really <laughs> wild experience. Um, but it, I, I found myself initially with a passion for emergency medicine And when I finished Mm -hmm. nursing school, I didn't have the clinical experience to start in the ED. So um, Mm -hmm. my recruiter at the time was like, "Ah, I'm I'm really sorry, but we just, we cannot, we can't put you in an ED with the clinical experience you have. So why don't you start on this trauma med surge floor? And, you know, um, it was orthopedic and trauma surgery. So I, we did, Mm -hmm. um, motor vehicle accidents, but we also did hip and knee replacements. And, um, Mm -hmm. it was a great, you know, setting. I never valued the start in med surge, um, until I actually did. And I, you learn so many skills and your time management and, um, you know, recognizing, um, patient conditions, changes in patient condition. And so I started there and I just, I, loved the patient population, the, the TBIs and, um, you know, the ortho trauma. And then, you know, your patient starts to decompensate and you start to get like into the, into the thick of it. And then all of a sudden they're getting whisked away to the ICU. And it was like, yeah, well, wait a minute. I was just starting to learn. I want to see that. Yeah. (laughs) That's my patient. Where are you going? I want to, I want to, I want to know what happens from here. Like, um, so that's kind of where I finally was like, all right, I need to go there. <laughs> like <laughs> I need yeah. to, I need to be where they're going. Cause I will kind of want to, like you said, yeah. I want to see this through. Um, so yeah. that kind of was my bridge to the ICU was I, I finally had kind of hit my max of what I could learn mm-hmm. and what I could see in med surge. And I, I wanted more. Yeah. I was just hungry for more knowledge and I was hungry for more skills. And I, 
wanted sicker patients. And um, so I just jumped right in head first. I think that that's a good, I mean, we kind of started in the same way and that I, I started in med surge too. I was, I was on a neurosurgical, you know, and our sister unit was that unit. It was like the trauma orthopedic unit. Um, but you know, we got like a lot of back surgeries and the TBIs and, um, but there's, there is a, a really, I mean, I think it's in, it's not, I wouldn't say you have to start in med surge but it does give you so many tools, you know, the prioritization piece. Oh my God. So, I mean, I can't imagine if I, if I started just focusing on one or two patients, I would have never been able to like, you know, expand and focus on four or five or six, you know, I think that that was like such an important piece. And I find, um, assessment skills, you know, just basic assessment skills. I mean, and when you're in med surge, yeah. you're, you're learning to do um, focused assessments on five patients and then mm-hmm. or full head to toes on five patients. And then when you get to the ICU, yeah. you're able to manage assessments on two patients, even if they even even yeah. though they are critically ill. OK, you have a couple more lines that you have to assess and you've got a, a mm-hmm. m- more drips, obviously, to manage. But ultimately the patient that's laying in the bed is the same. You're going to, you're going to assess their neuro status. You're yeah. going to assess their cardiopulmonary status. You're going to assess all of that stuff as if you would in med surge. It's just a little more, um, just a little more intense. A <laughs> little more. Yeah. Maybe things are a little more wrong, but actually like when you're documenting, you know, the time it takes to, you know, document a full assessment, that's yep. the same. I mean, the, the flow sheet yep. is the same in acute care versus ICU. It's just more, I mean, so that's just another part of the prior prioritization piece and time management piece is, you know, you have the same assessment per se in an ICU versus acute care, but in acute care, you have four or five people to do them on. So, you know, and if you're trying to be thorough, you know, you're really looking at all of those systems and pieces totally yep you know for all you absolutely people, and i also you know? find um so we we do orient new grads to our icu which is great we usually mm-hmm. require that they yeah. do like a practicum or that they have had some kind of icu clinical experience um and mm-hmm. you know i find that they're excellent you know these new grads they're smart and they're eager yeah. and they kind of already know they kind of already know the, the culture and the, um, the acuity, they kind of get that. But I do find that, you know, it's hard to, um, teach somebody to be a nurse uh, and also an ICU nurse at the same time, because I do find that they are, they are a little different. Um, so you're trying to teach this new grad to do their assessments and to do, you know, just their basic skills and their time management and their prioritization and then on top of it, mm-hmm. you're teaching them to manage drips and you're teaching them to manage lines and helping, you know, assisting mm-hmm. in procedures. There's a lot more that goes into um, being bedside in the ICU than in acute care. Yeah. I think that also goes, you know, oh, I'm going to be a preceptor soon um, for the, this new batch of new grads. And it's, it's a good thing to point out to kind of remember where you came from because I think when nurses that started in the ICU they probably have a better perspective on starting as a new grad in the ICU versus me I did med surge for eight years so it feels like a little more you know they're not going to have the time or you know the the acuity is not you know low enough to the point where we can slow down and like focus on this like you know time management piece but that's I guess that's not necessarily you know super important. I mean, people end up doing it. You know, if you like, you have just roll with the punches, and whoever your patients are that day, they are that yeah. day. I find um, it's the you know the new the it. nurse too, the new nurse, and like the dynamic between mm-hmm. the preceptor and the nurse um, really mm-hmm. can yeah. can make or break oh, that you know their the new grad experience and. um yeah. You know, I always find, and I hate to say it, but the ICU, sometimes your orientation is trial by fire because you just, 
you just never know what's going to happen to your patient. You know, one minute, one minute yeah. they're sitting there hanging out and talking to you. And the next thing you know, they're bleeding or they are decompensating. And you're like, wait a minute. Ah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So <laughs> like, oh. yeah. And it happens uh, and it happens on a dime. And um, so yeah. really preparing a new nurse for that, you know, mm-hmm. cause there's, there's, um, a comfort instability, right? We, we find that our yeah. patients are stable and we're like, Ooh, all right, they're out of the woods. But you yeah. know, in reality, they're in the ICU for a reason. So, um, right. yeah, I find that it's hard to sometimes orient those new grads when you're trial by fire orienting them. And then you're mm-hmm. like, right now we don't have time to talk about this, but I promise we'll go over it. Yeah. I think like that's the piece that I'm going to struggle with in precepting for the first time in the ICU is making the, just making the time, you know, it's like you, you, if you have to stay later to explain some piece, I think ultimately I'm going to end up choosing to stay later because it's, it really will, you know, make them understand their experience more. You know, I mean, in, in acute care, you have that time to kind of sit and go through sometimes, I mean, low acuity wise, you, you may have the time to like, you know, work through why the patient is here and stuff. Um, where you might not have all that time in the ICU, but you know, yeah, that's a piece I'm definitely going to have to work on. Well, and in acute care too, you have, um, the patient is here for this reason and they're generally, generally ready to either go out the door. They're waiting for placement Mm -hmm. for rehab or they're, they're waiting for something and, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there, like you said, there is that time and it's also very focused. Um, I find yeah. that if I had a, if I had somebody coming in for a knee replacement when I was in med surge, I focused on that person's mm-hmm. knee. I focused on them, yeah. their mobility, their pain and mm-hmm. getting them home in the ICU. It's multi-system, right? So you have to mm-hmm. think there's a lot more, um, pathophysiology where, how are their lungs and their kidneys working to compensate for an acidosis or, you know, their, how is their neuro status and, and their neurotrauma, for example, how is that affecting mm-hmm. their cardiopulmonary status? And so there's a lot more multi-system yeah. assessments in the ICU and, and, um, multi-system management also. Uh, yeah. we like, we love, we love to put lines everywhere. And so we mm-hmm. have to manage those. Right. And when we take over those body systems, you know, we put a Foley catheter in, we got to manage that. Um, we put yeah. a breathing tube in, we, we have to manage all of that. So it's, um, mm-hmm. a lot more complex when you think about, um, your focused assessments in med surge and then your complex assessments in the ICU and how that those are ever mm-hmm. evolving. You know, you're, you're assessing your patient, I think in the ICU, how many times a day, you know, if you're just constantly, constantly, (laughs) especially if you're singled and you have a filter or you have, you know, we're, we're doing large volume resuscitation and trauma and like Mm -hmm. you're at that bedside and you're assessing every 15 minutes, every five minutes. Um, so there's a lot. And, and that can be very overwhelming as a new grad. I remember even being an experienced nurse coming from med surge. I was like, whoa, this mm-hmm. is a lot. This is, this mm-hmm. is a lot. Um, so it's a big learning curve. Um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's doable. It, it, it it's is. doable. You know, it is. But I, you know, I, yeah, and, I should talk to a, a new grad going into the ICU about <laughs> <laughs> what their experience is. I know it's a lot, but I, I think that they would say, you know, I mean, I, you know, I did it. Yeah. So. And our, I mean, our new grads, we have been so fortunate. They just thrive and they, um, you know, mm-hmm. they really come into their own. It's really, you know, it's one thing to see, you know, a new grad on med surge, you know, they come into their own too. They, they get more confident and they, you can see it, but in the ICU, yeah. it's, it's like almost palpable when they put in a good mm-hmm. line when they, when they have a good catch, you know, you can see yeah. they are so immensely proud of themselves because pe- these people can decompensate so quickly. If you don't 
do that in a timely manner. Yeah. Um, for example, I had a new grad who yeah. caught a gentleman who had a pneumothorax spontaneous. We were, awesome. we were sitting there one night just chatting and all of a sudden he desatted and she was like, well, that was kind of weird. And she put a stethoscope to his chest and said, I think he, I think he's got a pneumo. And you know, he was on high peep therapy and that stuff can happen. Mm, and she did, yeah. she, we took a chest x-ray and sure enough, it was very obvious. And oh, that's it was awesome. one of those, like, you know, I, I was like, good job. That was a ama- an amazing catch. And she was like, yeah, you think so? Yes. Yes. <laughs> And, and to, that's what you're supposed to yes, do. Put two and two yes. together, not just assume, you know, that like it was a weird, just a you know, fluke. Blip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And her watching her confidence level after that night is just like, it's, that is the most rewarding as a preceptor for sure. Yeah. That is awesome because I think that there's a switch eventually where, you know, new grads are focused on like task oriented things. Like I just need to get through this list and through the day. And there's a switch where you kind of start to look at a a little bit of the bigger picture or you start to catch these like little assessment changes and be confident that it's not something that you just, you know, are, you know, picking up on, but maybe you didn't pick up on it before because you're a new grad, you know, it's like, being comfortable in your ability to assess your patient well. And a lot of times I think new grads do a more of a in-depth assessment because they don't know what they're looking sure. for. So they have to be, you know, you have, be, be confident in, in what you're assessing. Be confident. You know? Be thorough. Because a lot of times. Be thorough. Yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, that's, yeah, I think you're going to be a great preceptor. You're going to love, it's just, it really is so rewarding. And I don't know what your culture is like on your unit, but for us, like we orient kind of as a village, right? Like, yes, Mm -hmm, you, yes, you have a primary preceptor, but you have a, you have a village behind you. You have your neighbors Mm -hmm. and you have the resource nurse and you have the charge and, you know, during the day yeah. shift, you have um, your clinical nurse leader and you have all these people, you know, our nurse educator and all these people that are involved that want to see you succeed, um, yeah. that want to see new grads succeed or anybody that's orienting to the ICU succeed. Um, mm. And so I always I always tell my my new grads or my preceptees, like, we are here to set you up for success if you want to be an ICU nurse, like we are here to support you through that entire process, however long it takes. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's one of those things, like if you have a question, talk to somebody else, everybody has a different perspective, right? Everybody has their own experiences and backgrounds. And, um, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of, I, I always say phone a friend, survey the crowd, you know, see what other people have done or what they're doing and, um, and then come up, you know, and then they get their own style. So yeah. that's, yeah, absolutely. It's fun. It really is. It really is a village, I think, in the ICU. We'll be right back to our interview. Grab a cup of coffee, but don't go anywhere because we want to talk to you about our podcast partner, American Mobile. No matter your specialty, American Mobile has endless travel nursing opportunities. With the largest clinical team of all staffing agencies, American Mobile is ready to support you in achieving your career goals. To learn more about the benefits of American Mobile, like higher earning potential, premium health coverage, and 401k matching, make sure to visit AmericanMobile.com to speak with a recruiter. Again, visit AmericanMobile.com to discover your next travel nursing adventure. Now back to the show. Let's talk about more specific sticky stuff. So what is your patient population really in surgical trauma? Like what are the main people that you see? Sure. Yeah. So we are primarily adults. So we do 18 to 101. Um, we then <laughs> the cutoff. That's, that's, cut that's it. Well, I think that's the, <laughs> that's the oldest trauma patient I have, I have seen oh, is wow. 101. Okay. And, um, you know, and, and, Trauma is uh, one of the leading causes of injury in adults. Um, and so mm-hmm. we, we see anywhere from, I mean, 
you have your low level motor vehicle accidents, they maybe have a small head bleed and they want them in the ICU for frequent neuromonitoring mm-hmm. um, just to make sure that the bleed doesn't get worse or they decompensate. Yeah. Um, so we you know, do those Q one hour neuro assessments, keep them up all night and they're, they love us so much. what's your name what's your name where are you with the pen light where are you Uh, what are you doing here it's so awful but it's necessary people people will change but yeah yeah, i know it's one of the i have (laughs) i have seen those yeah and i've seen those you know you go in one the first that hour it's 11 o'clock you're talking to them and then the next thing you know you go in there and they can't move their right side and they've got a droop and you're like oh man that's that's a bummer. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's a bummer. We gotta go to CT. Oh, man, I hate it when that yeah. happens. Yeah. Um, so we get um, you know, we get or orthopedic traumas. So we do external fixations and frequent neurovascular checks, so pulse checks. Um mm-hmm. we do um management of open abdomens. So um if you have a motor vehicle accident, for example, and you sustain an abdominal injury, we do, you, you know, your primary assessment is done in the ER. It's usually done in the trauma bay. And if you have any kind of abdominal injury or process, you go to the operating room, they do what's called damage control surgery. So they go in, they find mm-hmm. either the source of bleeding, or maybe you have um, a hollow viscous injury. So you've got a ruptured um, bowel somewhere. Uh, They Mm. manage those, they stabilize them. They usually leave them open. So if you have any kind of leakage, um, any kind of bleeding, we usually like to keep people open so that we can do serial washouts, returns to the operating room. Um, So we manage those patients. They usually come to us intubated you know, with breathing tubes and, and yeah. sedated. So um, that's one of our large, large volume resuscitation patients where um, sure. they're, they're losing, they've lost crazy um, volume either in the OR or in the field. And um, so it's a lot of blood product. That's a lot of crystalloid and colloid resuscitation. Um, so how do you keep them open? Do you like, 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 clamps and stuff are like still there yeah so usually they're packed they're packed with pads um or packed with packing and then we our icu manage manages with um wound vacs so we do we do abthera wound vac therapy so it's a it's a you know a sponge that kind of goes into their their abdomen we usually protect their viscera and then we put the sponge on top and then the the vac therapy um, okay. But, so it's not completely, I was like, how do you keep that sterile? I feel like everybody would go into septic shock. Yeah, no. And every, and I mean, and, and back in the day, here's one of those examples where everybody, every surgeon is still managing those patients differently. Mm. You know, we have four trauma surgeons and they manage their open abdomens differently. Yeah. Um, and, and this is where I was talking to one of those low, small SICUs that's, still managing with just sterile drape they just take like that blast that plastic drape and just stick it on their abdomen and send them to the unit so <laughs> yeah make me so nervous yeah and so that when you know that's um really how you depending on how they're sent out to you is depend depends on how you manage them so, um, for example, way back in the day before I started in SICU, we used to paralyze all of medically paralyze all of our open abdomens so that they didn't move so that they didn't have that opportunity to cough and dehiss, or, um, they didn't try to sit up and crunch their abdomen and, and dehiss or rupture or yeah. so, um, we don't do that now. <laughs> my, my ICU wow. does not do that now. Um, okay. we, I have a trauma surgeon who loves to try to extubate his patients with open abdomens. Um, mm-hmm. But you have to think what comes with that pain control. So we have yeah. a really hard time managing these people's pain because they have a 
massive open wound. And so um, we always advocate against extubating patients with open abdomens only because it's very challenging to control their pain without continuous narcotic infusions. Yeah. Um, But that's just, you know, one of our surgeons that gets a little happy, you know, he, I can see the, (laughs) that's like one of the, one of the nuances about ICU is that you have the ability to kind of play with all of these different factors and like you, you know, like some people are just, you know, cowboys when it comes to oh, <laughs> when yeah. it comes to doing things like I mean, in in one I can see in, in one hand, yeah, intubation for longer periods of time for something that could potentially be managed while somebody is awake or while somebody can protect their own airway. I understand, you know, the benefits to that, but also, you know, so many other things come with you know, uncontrolled pain, you have like increase in catecholamines, you have like an inflammatory stress response, the patient is super uncomfortable, very uncomfortable moving around, you know, like the opportunity to DS, I'm sure like that's something, you know, you just have to, it's, yeah, it's a big risk benefit. Um, And uh, a lot of times the surgeon finds that the risk of keeping them intubated is greater than the benefit. And yeah. So we extubate, but it does, it does present a challenge for, for nursing, you know, cause obviously we, mm-hmm. we hate seeing our patients suffer and it's, there's right. no reason for it. So it's, it just, it just becomes a challenge. Yeah. Um, sure. and then, so that is in the setting of, of trauma, but we also do, um, on the other side of it, we have like general surgery. We do, um, ischemic bowel. So, um, Mm. necrotic bowel, uh, you know, intestines that have had, you know, thrombosed, um, vasculature that, you know, compromises that really viable or that really friable tissue that's really delicate. Um, so we manage those patients also, you know, we keep them, we keep them open. That's large volume resuscitation. And then you have the risk of sepsis, um, especially in necrotic bowel cases big time for for necrotic bowel so in in our icu necrotic bowel is almost like a surefire this patient is gonna die like they get like their lactic levels freaking skyrocket and they their acidosis skyrockets and then their pressors don't work and then they just i think like at at that point like if they get ischemic bowel then it's like all right and because we can't whisk them away too the OR, a lot of times they're not surgical candidates. So I'm kind of curious, like, who is a surgical candidate for ischemic bowel? Because I feel like I've never, I've never had a patient that were like, okay, he, he, like, <laughs> he is able to go to the OR. Let's take him now. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's case by case, really, yeah. um, because you do have to consider, their comorbidities, um, you know, what else is going on with these folks clinically? Is it just, and, and sometimes the ischemic bowel part's not their primary issue, right? Like they come in yeah. and, and they develop ischemic bowel because right. they were on a high pressor requirement. And we know that all of that blood flow gets diverted from your, yeah. from your mesentery to go everywhere else that's important. And yeah, yeah. you end up losing um, that, that bowel. And so we have, I mean, we do not hesitate to whisk people away. Mm. We really don't, especially if, if they've come in for bowel surgery or if they've come in for some kind of Mm -hmm. general surgery, uh, and we notice evidence of ischemic bowel, we don't hesitate to reopen and, and do X laps. Um, just to, just to see what's going on. Um, especially in the setting of a rising lactate and a presser requirement, Mm. if they get to a point where they're triple pressed, you know, um, on three pressers, a surgeon, a a surgeon may say, you know, even if we go in and take this bowel out, this is not, this is not reversible. Right. Um, so we, you know, yes, our threshold is low for, for managing and treating. Um, Mm. but, the threshold to actually, you know, if 
Yeah. If, if they're, if their patient, if their condition is just beyond kind of repair, um, yeah. then we do a goals of care conversation with the family and yeah. kind of let them know what's going on and the trajectory of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. A lot of times I think in our ICU ischemic bowel is a secondary thing that comes and it's like, you know, we don't have surgeons that have like put eyes on the bowel in the first place or like have a, you know, incision or something that they can like reevaluate and like open back up. Like a lot of the times it's, it is because, you know, maybe they had CPR two or three times and they were, we we were coding them for a long time and they just have, you know, their low blood volume to that area, you know, just yeah, and you're off in, circulation to that area for too long or. Yeah. And sometimes, like I said, sometimes that's just an irreversible condition and mm-hmm. it's, um, that's really hard. It's really hard to be a bedside nurse and have a surgeon say there's, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. Um, because as, as a nurse, you know what that means. Um, and you yeah. know what that means for the family, you know what that means for your patient. Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that can be a challenge for sure. But yeah. Do you feel like you have those conversations with patients or do you feel like your teams are normally pretty good about having those with family? Oh boy. Um, it really depends. Um, yeah. our, our surgical team is really good about being quite frank. Um, yeah. especially if it's a trauma patient that comes in and we have, access to their next of kin, you know, we tell Mm -hmm. them we'll do everything we can, but this is, this is a very serious, uh, and, and grave injury. You know, this, this could be potentially fatal. Um, I always find now that I've, you know, that I'm an old nurse, an older nurse, I find that, um, I am more, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm less likely to sugarcoat Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I present it very nicely and I, you know, I, I always tell family, you know, this is, I I've seen this before. Um, and, and they'll ask, you know, and you have family mm-hmm. that will ask you, you know, have you yeah. seen this before? Do you think they're going to die? And you've yeah. got to, you know, I think there's a very fine line that we walk there with that question. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have a crystal ball. But in other cases that I've seen here, you know, this is, this may not be survivable for your loved one. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think in those conversations, the most important thing is to just be very transparent about what you, what you know for that particular circumstance, Right. but also know, I mean, as a nurse, if I know for sure, I mean, if they're on three pressers and their lactic is raising and they're like acidotic and I can't get their maps above 65, I'm comfortable talking to the family about this is what I'm seeing and this is, you know, but a lot of times I feel like our teams are pretty good about having, preparing um, families before it gets to that point. But um, in, in some, you know, a lot of the gray area where, you know, we're still doing interventions and like hoping that things will work. Uh, families want to cling on to any, you know, hope that they have. So you, you, you don't want to take that away from them, but you also just want to prepare them for what is probably inevitable. Yep. You know, the reality, I always say, you know, it, of course we want your loved one to get better. And, you know, we we're we're doing everything we can, but Mm -hmm. I fear that despite everything that we're doing, that this, it may not be enough. And, um, you know, I think we, um, we definitely, I don't know if this is true for you, but I feel that we do not, um, just in general, we don't talk about death enough. And I find that in a surgical ICU, I mean, medical ICU too, you know, we see a lot of irreversible conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we become comfortable saying, you know, this person is, this patient is likely going to die. And so just coming with that experience, being able to talk to family and, and saying, you know, this, um, 
you know, we're, we've kind of reached the point where we're not really sure what else we can do. Um, yeah. And again, I find that a lot in surgical and trauma settings, mm-hmm. you know, they have, um, for example, recently we had a very severe ortho trauma case come in and brought him to the operating room and they got him open and they were like, there is just his, the extent of his internal vascular injuries were so severe that mm. there was just nothing that they could do. And so they closed him up and brought him to the ICU and then he passed. Um, and they, you know, told the family, like, we, we tried, you know, we, we, we took him to surgery and we did everything we could. And unfortunately it was just not in the cards. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, there's a lot of times for, and search certainly for trauma, I can imagine, you know, you don't know what you're getting into. You don't know until you open them up and take a look. Right. So, and then, and, and then you have these devastating head injuries. So here mm-hmm. in New Hampshire, we don't have a helmet law. Um, so you're not wow. required by law to wear a helmet on your motorcycle. Oh. And uh, so we, we see these incredibly devastating head injuries mm-hmm. and, and they are, I mean, and they are often fatal because mm-hmm. it's just, you can fix a bone, you know, you can throw a breathing tube in and you can manage somebody's lungs, but you just, you can't, you can't get brain back. You can't get that yeah. back. And so that's. Um, we see a lot of neurotrauma, mm. a lot of neurotrauma. Is, is neurotrauma managed differently than, than the other, other specialties? No, not necessarily, but I f- it, it is more collaborative. So we mm-hmm. have our trauma surgeons who are usually the primary team for those patients. They, they come in labeled as a trauma. Um, and mm. then they have neurosurgery consult. So usually neurosurgery will manage their neurologic injuries. Sometimes depending, they'll manage their um, cervical spine injuries as well. Um, Mm. And so that's where it kind of gets sticky, right? You have your primary team and then you have the secondary team. And sometimes you have to report to the secondary team yeah. So that you can get orders to manage that, you know, mannitol, 3%, you know, does this person need an extra ventricular drain? Do they need mm-hmm. a bolt to monitor intracranial pressures? Um, so we are a very collaborative ICU and we have to be mm-hmm. because these patients are so complex. You know, we work closely with orthopedics with their ortho injuries and we work with our um, anesthesiologists for pain control. And then mm-hmm. we work with neurosurgery to manage their head injury. And so it's, um, there's a lot of cooks neuro, in the kitchen. Do you have a neuro ICU? We do. Yep. We do. Okay. Yep. That's because a lot of, I mean, our, our patients with like bolts and EVD drains and all of that, like ICP monitoring, they would all go to the neuro. But See, for are... us, it depends on the set. It depends on the setting. So in our trauma yeah. setting, if we put a bolt in or an EVD in, they come to the surgical ICU. If mm. they have a hemorrhagic stroke and require an EVD, they go to our neuro ICU. I see. And so I, I am cross-trained in both. When I first started in the ICU, we were um, launching our neuro ICU. So they were cross-training all of the surgical ICU nurses to work down there. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were getting trained in TPA administration and thrombectomy, you know, post thrombectomy management. And, Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of learned, we learned a lot that way, um, which is nice. And we developed a really good relationship with our neurosurgery team that way. Um, Mm -hmm. so again, that collaboration and you, you have to, you have to all work together because these patients are just so sick. Man, I just gave TPA for the first time the other day. Did you? <laughs> that is a scary it, med. It's nerve-wracking. <laughs> it is. That is a scary. So TPA is the thrombolytic of choice when you have any clots anywhere. And I think this woman, she wasn't my, I was floating around the ICU and uh, one of our new grads had the patient. And so she obviously was her first time, but it was my first time too. And so I like printed out the policy. I was like, with the whole thing, like, you know, got pharmacy involved. They were the, yeah. you know, we had everything. But you have to do Q15 minute neurochecks 
you know, yeah. what's your name? Yeah. So <laughs> every yeah, 15 it's... minutes for like two hours and then every 30 minutes for another two hours or. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's Q15 for two, Q30 by six and it's Q1 for the rest of the 24 hours post TPA. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so for us, we only have certain nurses that can administer the actual medication, but mm-hmm. we obviously can do the follow-up um, assessments yeah. and management. And then, you know, you, you go for your follow-up head CT to make sure they don't have hemorrhagic conversion, mm. um, which I've seen. Um, yeah. And sometimes you see yeah, it, it sometimes, yeah, sometimes you see it in the middle of the administration of, of the drug. Yeah. Which is scary. And which is super scary. Um, sometimes you see it, you know, it'll be, you're at the 23rd hour and everything is looking good. And then all of a sudden they have a neuro change and you're like, oh, all yeah. right, I guess we're going to CT early. Yep. 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 What are some of your favorite patients to take care of in the, in the you? Oh yeah. I, I'm a big open belly fan. I, I love <laughs> high volume resuscitation. I love, um, you know, they're, they have these awful capillary leaks and they're weeping in their, you know, internally and we're replacing all of that. You know, you have your, Mm. your fluid, um, replacement resuscitation on top of your, um, your volume resuscitation. So it's just, it's a lot of given albumin and giving LR and your, um, constantly, like I said, you're constantly reassessing to make sure that they're not bleeding and you're making sure that they don't develop abdominal compartment syndrome, which is, uh, um, a condition that can be fatal. You know, the pressure Mm -hmm. in their belly gets to be so high that it starts putting pressure on the internal organs and you lose that flow. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then your liver starts to fail, your kidneys start failing and, um, you know, you, you lose your pressure because it starts putting pressure on your superior vena cava. And it's just the, Mm -hmm. the implications of, of, um, abdominal surgery, the complications of abdominal surgery are far and extensive. So I really like managing those patients. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of, I don't want to say fun, but it's, um, it is. I it's mean, very, it's tasky and you are thinking about every system and, you know, the, the question, what's your favorite patient is always a funny thing to ask ICU nurses because <laughs> they're always the train wreck worst, you know, the sickest, sickest of the sick. Yes. And it doesn't, you know, it's like, we're so, um, um, compartmentalized as far as like, it's not our favorite you know, we don't wish that on anyone, but right. this is like the job that we have been taught to do and we can do it well. well and these yep. are like the, you know, the high stakes, you know, fast paced environment that put us in the ICU. So in those, in that circumstance, yeah, they're, they're, you know, our favorite patients to take care of yeah. versus people that we don't have to think as critically on, or we don't have to, you know, use as many of our critical skills. Right. That was why. And like I said, you know, before I went to the ICU because I wanted to follow the pathway of my sick patients. Yeah. Right. And so when you are, and I think when you are in a one-to-one assignment and you're managing a really sick patient, you know, obviously it can go one of two ways. It can go mm-hmm. well and they can stabilize or it does not go well and you have to code them or you, they, they mm-hmm. end up expiring. And um, I think there's a lot of thrill in that line of, is my mm-hmm. patient going to stabilize or is my patient going to decompensate further? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think a lot mm-hmm. of surgical trauma nurses, ICU nurses are a little bit of adrenaline junkies. Like a a lot of us do, um, a lot of us participate in high risk sports, which is really funny considering (laughs) what we do for a living. Um, (laughs) like when do you guys just sit and like drink tea and do yoga? Yeah, never. (laughs) It's like, it's like, it's like, yeah, I'm getting off shift. I'm going to go skiing. Um, you know, I'm going to go snowmobiling. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we have people that ride their motorcycles into work. And so it's just, um, 
I had, I'll never forget, I had a trauma surgeon. We were taking care of a, a gal who had gotten into a skiing accident. And she had been a skier her whole life. And she fell and sustained a head injury that was devastating. And I said to my trauma surgeon, I said, you know, I'm going skiing this weekend. And he just kind of snapped and was like, how, how are you going to go skiing after managing this patient? Like, doesn't that make you nervous? And it's like, well, if we lived in such a way that every patient that walks through the door makes me nervous to live my life, I, I would never leave my house. Yeah. You know, I would never get in the car. I would never walk down the street. You know, mm -hmm. we see pedestrians getting hit by cars. We see people driving to work or driving to the hospital to get their regular appointments and yeah. they get into accidents. You know, anything can happen at any time. And um, a lot of us choose to live our life in such a way that we're going to enjoy it. And yeah, even that woman that we were taking care of, you know, her sister said to me, she was doing what she loved. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you go out doing what you love, I, I mean, for me, that's, that's kind of ideal. Yeah. It's, it is uh, interesting. You know, we see the worst of the worst cases and, you know, we see them all the time. So it may seem to us like, you know, it's, it's an inevitable thing that will happen, you know, because of like a high risk, you know, environment if you yeah. like decide to but that's not really the case I think that's like an important thing to remember you know working in the hospital and like seeing your patient I remember I thought that I had a brain tumor when I was working in neurosurgery I thought I had a blood clot because I was oh, getting no. like headaches all the time and I really just needed glasses <laughs> But I, but I like was so convinced, you know, when I was like 21, 22, that I had a blood clot. I'd like been on birth control and, you know, I had seen, you know, my patients that I see all the time were neurosurgical patients with brain tumors and blood clots. And yeah, know, it's, it's that, you that think, mindset. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're like, like, wait, no, I just yeah. am dehydrated and I haven't had my eyes checked in years. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Totally. Just run of the mill. So, well, that yeah. was like, um, you know, when I worked in orthopedics, I ended up hurting my back. I ended up herniating a disc in my lumbar spine. Mm. And again, as, as a nurse, the second it happened, I went, oh, no, something bad happened. And everybody was like, yeah. no, it's going to be fine. You know, my colleagues, I, cause I, I got hurt at work and my colleagues were like, no, you're going to be oh. fine. Um, it's just, you're just sore. It'll, it'll go away. And then I went to my primary and he said, ah, you know, it, you, you're young, it'll go away. And then it didn't go away. And I went and got an MRI and, and got a phone call saying that I had a pretty severe herniation that was likely going to need surgical intervention. And, and, uh, yeah. So, and it was, I mean, the second it happened, I was like, I'm, I'm hurt. This is, this is not good. And yeah. never would I have expected it to go um, all the way to surgery. Um, it right. it kind of went from zero to 100 pretty quickly. But I think nurses in general are very intuitive. And that mm -hmm. includes and that includes our, our own self-awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, obviously, you didn't have a tumor or a blood clot. <laughs> but we are hyper aware of not only patients clinical changes, but our mm -hmm. own, our own medical clinical changes. And, um, you know, nurses really are the worst patients because we think we are either, no, it's nothing and it'll be fine. Or it's, <laughs> or it's a maybe tumor. I am really hurt. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I should yeah. get this checked out. So yeah. I know I ride that line all the time. I'm like, all oh, the time. I'm probably let me eat something and drink some water. And if it doesn't go away, I'll take some Tylenol. And if it doesn't go away after that, nah. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm going into work. I might as well just stop. Yeah, at yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll just swing through. Yeah. Right. Um, I want to talk about tele ICU. Oh, sure. Um, so it's, that's a really unique thing. I had never heard of that before, um, before you were talking about it. So tell me a little bit about what 
it is and what your role in it is. Yeah. So, um, well, I think with COVID, obviously we know that telehealth really, um, picked up during, uh, during the last few years. And so when I first started in the ICU, we were kind of rolling this program out called tele-ICU. And it was pitched to me in a way that um, as a critical care nurse at an academic institution, you um, support uh, rural ICUs and critical access hospitals, and you help them manage their really sick patients. And the goal is to ultimately keep people closer to home. So um, in Vermont and New Hampshire, we are very rural. So a lot of, you know, I think our closest rural hospital is maybe 40 minutes away. Um, The farthest is maybe two and a half hours away. And we were transporting these people at the drop of a hat. You know, if they started to look even even a little bit too sick, they said, no, we got to transfer them. We got to transfer them. We got to send them out. And so we, as a program, are working really hard to keep those patients close to home. We find that if their family is involved, their outcomes are better. And when you have folks that are in a hospital two and a half hours away from home, their family can't come and visit every day. Their family can't be involved at the bedside making driving I mean and that all that drives care too so that makes uh, managing that care really challenging um so I monitor four rural ICUs between Vermont and New Hampshire um I have a census and I also monitor the 60 ICU beds that we have in-house so I monitor anywhere upwards of 90 to 100 ICU patients a night They are not all intubated. They're not all sedated, but they are all in an ICU um, for one reason or another. Um, And so we, we help those hospitals manage their ventilators. You know, if they do have a patient that decompensates, we assist with rapid sequence intubation. We help Mm. assist putting in chest tubes. Um, Our program, our tele-ICU program helped prone the first COVID patient in the state of Vermont. Mm. So wow. we, yeah, so we helped hospitals implement paralytic protocols and proning protocols for COVID. Yeah. Um, and we provide a lot of these hospitals with intensivists. Um, mm. So some of these hospitals, they, they only have a hospitalist overnight. And as great as they are and as smart as those hospitalists are, they really do need the support of, of an intensivist. Yeah. And so we do provide that for them, um, which is great. Uh, we, I find that there's a varying degree of, um, of excitement when it comes to having our involvement. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these small hospitals, like they've been, we've been managing on our own this long. What do we need Big Brother for? And it's like, <laughs> well... You know, the reality, and I've, and I've had this conversation with bedside nursing, you know, the reality is, is we don't have beds. Tertiary care across the tri-state area for us has been, you know, the bed availability has been very limited. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, sometimes you have to be frank with this, these bedside nurses that are like, well, you know, they're getting too sick. We're going to have to transfer them. And it's like, I'm sorry to tell you, um, there's nowhere for this patient to go. So together, we're going to work together to manage this person. And I'm Mm going to give you, I mean, we write orders for these nurses and Mm. for these patients. We, um, we monitor all of their lab work. We have their cardiac telemetry up on our monitors all the time. So we can identify hypotension and rhythm changes. Um, you know, like for example, I mean, I caught I caught a STEMI at one of our hospitals one night, mm. and it was just a a little change in there. And for me, we we you know our monitors are not primary monitors, but I always call the primary nurse and say, "Hey, you know, is this patient experiencing chest pain? Or you know, I've noticed that their telemetry is looking a little different, and I think it may be worth working it up." Yeah. And, and, and sure enough, did an EKG. The guy was having a STEMI. So you have access to like their EMRs? Like I all have access their... to 
all of their EMRs. Okay. I cannot document in all of them. So there are some cases like, um, for the hospital I work in, we also monitor our own ICU beds. And so I'll say to my colleagues, Hey, while you're getting settled, can I put vital signs in for you? Can I throw a weight mm-hmm. in for you? Can I document their neuro exam for you? Um, and so I find that that can be very helpful mm-hmm. with the outside hospitals. Um, if we do a rapid sequence intubation or a code, I will record for them. So I'll record okay. and then I'll either type it out or write it out and I fax it over to them so that they have that as a record of kind of what they did in the room. And that How way it allows... The... Yeah. So go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that allows the primary bedside nurse to really focus on the meds that they're giving, um, their patient condition, and then mm-hmm. that, that allows us to really take all of that off of their plate, you know, because then at the end of the night, I mean, and how many times have you sat down to go chart and you're like, what just happened? <laughs> so what many did times. I, so in many codes, times. absolutely. Totally. Yeah. What, in, in RSI, in, in high volume resuscitation, you're like, how many units of FFP did we give? Mm-hmm. And so having somebody, and I always say, just yell it out. Just, yeah. just yell it out. I will write it down. You know, we do, obviously we do a closed loop. They say epi given, I epi given, and I write down the time. And it's just, it's, it's nice. I find that um, a lot of the small hospitals will really appreciate, um, especially in situations like that, our, mm-hmm. our input and our involvement. What is the audio video setup in that circumstance? Sure. Yeah, we have. So in every ICU room, we have hardwired audio visual um, equipment. So you have a camera and a monitor in the room. Um, So we can kind of chat just like you and I are now. Um, I can I can engage my camera and then I can engage my camera looking back at me so that they can see me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I can do my own assessment sometimes, you know, how you feeling in there? You know, you you look a little tired. How's your breathing feeling? Um, Mm. and then I can report to the bedside, you know, if the bedside is busy, I can sit with, you know, I, I, I've caught people trying to climb out of bed before and I've turned Mm -hmm. my camera on to be like, Hey, you really need to get back into bed, please. You know, and uh, they're always like, <laughs> why, where, where's that coming from? <laughs> God, um, you know, so, uh, yeah. So I've, I mean, um, we have a, a lot of capability, um, mm-hmm. and like, and, and the quality is, is excellent. I mean, I can, so it's usually, if you think about your ICU room, our camera is up above kind of facing, um, the foot of the bed so that you can see directly onto the patient. Okay. And you can move the camera around and I can zoom in on pumps. I mm-hmm. can zoom in on their oxygen setting on the wall. I can zoom in all wow. the way onto their monitor and look at, I, I can look at their telemetry at the bedside. I can look at their vent settings on the ventilator. You know, I can look at, I can look at wounds. I can look at I mean, our, I mean, the zoom and the quality of, of our video is really awesome. That is incredible. And you're doing yeah. that for like, you have access to like almost a hundred patients. Yeah. Yep. That is wild. What yeah. a great week. That's amazing. I, you know, and I, I wish we would have been talking about that more because I feel we're like kind of wrapping up now. We could have a whole like another podcast about it's- Tele ICU. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I really, I really do feel like it's the future of of medicine. I don't think we will ever eliminate bedside nursing. As much to our chagrin, I don't think we will ever eliminate bedside nursing. Mm -hmm. But how do we better support bedside? And um, telehealth has really been has really been the way. And uh, so, we're very hopeful that we'll our program is going to expand and. Um, grow and that we can support more patients and our, our reach is farther, which will be great. And, uh, you know, we only hope to improve outcomes. That's really all we hope to do. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, I mean, they would be in a much worse spot if, if it wasn't for this program. Yeah. And sometimes, and sometimes, yeah, I mean, we've had some really good saves and, 
Um, it's a lot about education too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, these small hospitals, when they get somebody who's really sick, they don't know what they don't know. Right. You know, yeah. you and I, you and I see incredibly sick people all the time. Mm-hmm. And so when these small hospitals get somebody who is just crashing, they, they're sometimes like, what do we do? Yeah. You know, the limits on their medications is different. Like, um, mm-hmm. a lot of hospitals, their Levo, um, max limit is very low. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they have a patient that's crashing and, and they're like, we can't turn our Levo up that high. And it's like, oh yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. <laughs> oh yeah, gonna. you can. <laughs> please do, please do that. Yeah. So, um, so that's a challenge, you know, working with four different hospitals, learning their policies, yeah, learning their protocols, learning what they can and cannot do. Because for us, we're like, give them whatever, do whatever. Yeah, yeah right. we do that all the time. And they're like, yeah, yeah, and they're like, oh no, we don't, we don't do that here. Yeah. Well, you like, don't do Ooh. that because. Well, they, I'm sure they'll probably, their policies will change the, you know, more abilities they have to take care of sicker patients. You know, it will start to mirror like what you'll do at a, at a trauma one for yep. certain circumstances, you know? Yep. So, and, um, our telehealth program is really large. It's not just tele-ICU. We have tele-ICN and tele-pharmacy and tele-neurology and tele-ED and, um, that is also expanding. So, um, truly telehealth is, and I kind of got into it at the right time because I really do feel like it's, um, it's the, it is the future of nursing and of medicine. So it's exciting to see kind of where we're going. So cool. I I would love to have you on again to talk about tele, like just strictly tele ICU. We could have a whole hour conversation about it. Yeah. Well, Liz, I'm going to wrap it up here, but thank you so much for coming on. It's always thank nice you. to talk to another yes. ICU nurse and, you know, <laughs> shoot the breeze. Uh, yeah. I mean, we could talk all day. Yeah. Stories. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's great about nursing is we always have stories and mm-hmm. it's that, I think it's really that shared experience that kind of brings us all together, especially yeah. in the ICU. You know, when we see those really sick patients, when we lose a patient, Mm-hmm. That shared experience is really um, is really special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Liz. I'll talk thank to you, you soon. All right. Take Bye. it easy. Bye. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in to Nursing Uncharted. To learn more about today's episode, make sure to explore the show notes at AmericanMobile.com slash Nursing Uncharted. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a guest. If you're a nurse interested in traveling, visit AmericanMobile.com to explore the largest database of travel nursing jobs in the industry and the amazing benefits that American Mobile has to offer. Also, a special thanks to producer Jonathan Carey, assistant producers Katie Schraubin and Sam McKay, and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. Until next time, take care of yourself.